Um, I don't know if everybody in the back can see the quote. I like interesting quotes, I guess. It says, um, We may be very conscious of weakness in ourselves, but weakness need not be unfaithfulness or unbelief. Conscious weakness casts us all the more upon divine faithfulness, upon the love of Christ and of God. That's from Coates' um, book, Outline of the Minor Prophets. If or when we believe not, yet he abides and remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Faithful is one of the words in um, something we're going to be looking at tonight. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you indeed for your faithfulness. We ask that our time together this evening might help us to more clearly understand who you are, your purposes for us and in us, the resources that we have, and ultimately that Jesus Christ would be honored, would be lifted up, and you would be glorified in the process. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, we're really not reinventing the wheel here. Um, I appreciated what Pastor Weefel said Sunday when he referred to Peter reminding the believers that um, we're just going to stir up our pure minds, which I take as the mind that we have in the new nature created in Christ Jesus. But regardless, we're going to have our pure minds stirred up. Interesting as well with Peter, he says to those same folks, by the way, we haven't made known unto you, made known unto you cunningly devised fables. So his word is sure, it's true. You can bank on it. Sort of um, one of my go-to concepts when I think about why am I here, where am I going, what's it all about, particularly as we'll get into it as a believer or a child of God, but just even in general, why, why would God make man? Most of you probably have a pretty good idea. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, be good if I looked at the notes. <laughs> in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. Man became a living soul when God breathed into him the breath of life. That's in Genesis chapter 2. Paul, in fact, prays, which is unique, again, among all of God's creation. He prays in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 regarding the entire person, spirit, soul, and body, quote-unquote. 
This fact that man is made in the image and likeness of God is the fundamental distinction between man and the rest of God's creation. This is a timer that my dear wife and Valerie gave me. I remember Pastor Leonard holding a watch up years ago and he said, see this here? It doesn't mean a thing. (laughs) We hope that it does tonight. (laughs) So... Colossians chapter 1, we see that Christ is worthy to receive, to, that in Christ all things consist and by him all things are made. We have here uh, Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So you can see that I have um, received glory bolded because... That's one of the key reasons for creation, really, is his glory. There's an aspect or facet of man which is unique in all of God's creation, and it's this. The capacity for relationship, communion, and fellowship with God. That, right there in my mind, is what sets apart man from the rest of his creation the capacity for relationship, communion, and fellowship with God. He's not interacting with any other creature the way he can and wants to with us. So the short answer to the question why did God make man is he made man for relationship, for fellowship with himself, with the intent intent that this relationship will ultimately honor and glorify God uniquely and eternally. Some uh, scripture from Isaiah. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath my hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him who is poor of an account poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Some of what we're going to be discussing lands on that principle right there. Um, If you don't mind, maybe we can turn to Revelation chapter 21. I didn't um, put it in the notes or in the slide, I guess. So one of the things that um, I hope to bring out um, 
is that concepts in the verse that, I, that, that I'm going to land on, those concepts are central, found throughout Scripture from the get-go, from Genesis right on through to Revelation. And it has to do with what does this relationship that man can have with God and God with man, what does that relationship look like? What are the components of it? So in Revelation 21, so the Genesis part, I don't have it in the notes, but I mean we're all familiar with the story. We read that God was made man in his image, in his likeness, and it says that what? He walked, I think technically it might even be a theophany, I don't know, Christ, you know, pre-advent pre birth of Christ, uh, where God actually walked with man in the garden. And they had fellowship, they had union, they had communion. Nothing between the creature and his creator at that point. We call it innocence. <clears throat> Fast forward. And by the way, as an aside, this very book, one of the principal reasons for, for this book and purposes of this book, it's not just as important as that is. So maybe the key element is that this book reveals God to men, to us. How else are we going to know anything about God? We only know minutely or in a measure by looking at his creation. Psalm 19 tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day in the day other speech. If you open your eyes and you get to the age where you can start to think, you will see the handiwork of God. You also see some other things like brokenness. Different story. So now... All the way through, this book reveals principal purpose to reveal God to men. What else? In my mind, the secondary purpose, because what's the point, is because this book invites us into and discusses the elements that are involved if we are to have relationship with God. And that is the, one of the principal reasons why God made man for that relationship, that communion, that fellowship. Revelation 21. So now we're going to go to the end. So we have this whole story, history, his story. We have all the different players and, you know, the different economies and all that stuff. And now we come to, towards the end. Verse, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. I've got to be honest with you, I have no clue really. I haven't looked it up or tried to figure it out what exactly that means. I don't know. I, I think I read somewhere once that fresh water, yes, but salt water, no. I don't know. Who knows? And I, John, saw the, whole, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned, adorned for her husband. Now, I don't know, I don't want to get off in the weeds, and I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm already in danger of that. My understanding is that the believer will be able to, will have a place 
in this new Jerusalem, so to speak. There are many dwelling places. And we are a heaven, the child of God in this age, the age of grace, is a heavenly people. And so Christ, though, is going to literally be fulfilling those Davidic covenants, promises, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, Palestinian covenant all those, those covenants with his people on earth. And by the way, the church, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia uh, it means called out. Well, there was the church, you know, Israel was the church in the wilderness. So different people, different age, different privileges, responsibilities, different relationship, but still children of God, still God's people, those that are saved. Anyway, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's the thing I'm trying to get at. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And then you can read some of the other things involved. Uh, Verse 5, And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So, the point is, God will actually tabernacle with men. He's going to dwell with man. What did he do in the garden? He walked and talked. He dwelt with with men. What does he want to do right now in our heart? Doesn't he want to have that kind of relationship where he, you know, I walk and I talk with the Lord. You know, one of the hymns says, you know, come to the garden alone. And the voice I hear falling falling on my ear the Son of God discloses. I must have bumped something. Oh, I'm going back, that's why. So, maybe some of the questions we should be asking. Or is, with, is relationship with God even possible? Can the relationship be enjoyed on a level that God intended and desires for us to have? And finally, what either hinders or promotes that relationship? That right there is pretty important. If relationship with God, our relationship with God and His with us, is the central, non-negotiable, must-have uh, element known to man, then wouldn't it be kind of important then to figure out, you know, what would either hinder or help that relationship? I think so. God thinks so. That's why He talks about it. Ah. So, if you would like, please turn to 1 John 1 9. So, John in this chapter is 
making the claim that what we have seen right from the get-go again, and they actually as disciples handled the living word, the word of life in the person of Christ. They were there. They walked and talked with him while he was on earth. And they are going to try and communicate to the believers what? They want to communicate something critical that you and I, as his children, children of God, can have fellowship with the Father through Christ. So the message, God is light, in him is no darkness, he is of purer eyes than to behold sin, and so that light, not only in its holiness, but in what it reveals, what it reveals about us and about God, that very light is what we need to walk in in order to have a truer understanding of ourselves, well, God primarily, of ourselves, the world around us, others, as well as God. So, now we're going to come to the Houston, we have a problem part of the equation. All right? So, if we said that relationship with God was one of the primary purposes for God creating man, and that whatever hinders or promotes that relationship is central to that relationship. Our understanding of whatever promotes, hinders or promotes. So then it's kind of important where he says, if we have no sin, we're being deceived. So, and we're actually deceiving ourselves in the sense that, you know what, we're just not being honest about it. We're not, we're not owning it. Owning it. We're, we're living deluded, I think Pastor Gus talked about when he went through this. And then, therefore, we're not walking in the light of his truth. The truth isn't presently at that time in us. It's not talking about positional realities. This is all about relationship. The unbeliever, the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, the plowing of the wicked is sin. It doesn't matter what he does. From that source, from the Adamic nature, from, as a lost soul, how it looks externally is irrelevant. You can be more, and Paul goes through that in the Romans, for the first three chapters. He looks at the, the immoral man, the moral man, and the religious man. I remember being, having it explained. The religious man epitomized in the, the Jew looks down his nose at the moral man who may be a good guy but isn't religious per se. And then he looks down his nose at the immoral dude, the people of the baser sort. Romans 3.23, well, starting in verse 10, Romans 3.10, none righteous, no, not one, none understand. There's actually no one that seeks God. Not really. Verse 23, all have sinned come short of the glory of God, there's your indictment. There's your Houston, we have a problem. 
And sin is the very thing which then hinders that relationship, and that's why it is out of the gate an issue. It really is. So what's the verse say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my, I don't know if it's a humble opinion, but I, I firmly believe that as much as any verse in the Bible, this verse touches on the relationship between God and men from both sides of the equation. That is important. You know, at the end of the day, too, this isn't about us. Yes, we must be important. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent his son to die for us and solve the problem, paying the debt for sin, which separated us from and made, prevented or hindered that relationship from being even possible. But at the end of the day, it's still, even in the relationship that we can have with him, it's still about him. It's always about him. It's not about us. It's about his honor, his glory, his work, his person, his outreach, his invitation, his purposes, his will. Yeah, I got a little bit ahead of myself, I guess. Why is this thing all? So, I would say, again, that just as to reiterate, there's many verses in God's words which shed light on and answer these questions. What's the questions? Where where do we have those? Is relationship with God even possible? Can the relationship be enjoyed on a level that God intended and desires for us to have? And finally, what either hinders or promotes that relationship? So I got, yep, I did. I got ahead of myself here. I got to follow the darn notes. Because, the okay, why is this true? This verse being so central and critical, 1 John 1, 9, these concepts right there. Because the concepts embedded, embedded in this verse are found throughout Scripture. From Genesis through Revelation, I mentioned that. They're foundational and fundamental to the relationship between God and men. As much as any verse on the, in the Bible, it touches on the relationship between God and men, again, from both sides of the equation. Here's where I wanted to get to. Don't have it in my notes, but, or in the slides. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with or if you've heard the saying, little hinges swing on big doors. I had never heard that until recently, not that long ago. Well, this verse, in my mind, is just such a hinge. Spoiler alert. Why do you think that's so? Because the seeds of the gospel are found right here in this verse. What is it that allows us to get into this relationship that God created and made man for? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Why? Again, keep it simple. Profound, but simple. The gospel deals with the issue of sin, which is that which hinders or interrupts the relationship that man can have with God and brings him into right relationship positionally. And as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. What do you think it is? This verse, 1 John 1, 9, it's talking primarily about relationship. So what do you think is central to the relationship? The gospel. That's why what Pastor Mike referred to with Peter, stirring up your pure minds, we're not reinventing the wheel. There's the hymn that says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. It never gets old. And if it does appear or seem, and let's be honest, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. I've heard this a million times before. Tell me something I don't know. Shame on me if I'm thinking that way. We have a treasure in earthen vessels. It's called a treasure. That's the gospel. So it's not a stretch to say that this verse and these concepts could ever be overstated. It would be hard in my mind to say that 1 John 1.9 is overrated. It really would. If you're looking at it this way, then you, you'd have to explain to me what you meant by something like that, to, to say something like that. Now, that's not to say it couldn't be abused. So if you're using, you know, hey, get out of jail free, I can just do what I want, let her rip. You know, Paul kind of has the same concept with uh, grace. What, what, shall we sin that grace may abound? <clears throat> Wrong answer. <laughs> Not if you're going to enjoy relationship with him the way the Lord wants you to. Same thing here. We're not using 1 John 1, 9 like a rabbit's foot. Uh, you know, or at least we shouldn't be. So, if we, if we, if we may and we may not, we might and we mightn't. We. Our sin. This is on us. Not somebody else's. It's personal. It's about me and my relationship with God and his relationship with me. And what are we doing? What's this all about? Confess. We're confessing our sin, not somebody else's. And as we'll see, we're not blame-shifting or excusing or trying to cover this whole thing up and pretend like it ain't real, because it is. It's an issue. It's a problem. Good thing we know the problem solver, and he's made uh, a way, the way, to address the issue. So, where do we start? We confess. What does confess mean? To say the same thing, to agree with God, to see it his way and look at it as he does. And as we unpack this, we are directed to the fly in the ointment, which again is sin. So if you want to, I don't know, I guess you don't really have to turn there. I think I already have... uh, 
Proverbs, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are swift to, in running to mischief, a false witness who speaks lies, and he who swords disco, sows discord among the brethren. There's a message or two right there in that verse. All I'll say right here is, if you look at, you know, where did the problem start? And you chase it back, it didn't start essentially with men. We bought the lie. It started with the liar, the deceiver. It, st- it started with Lucifer, the highest of cre- God's created order, and it says in Isaiah 14 and, and uh, Ezekiel 28 sort of speaks to it. Pride was found in his heart, and he lifted himself up. Pastor Leonard said, in effect, he was saying to God, you know what? I'm so full of myself. I want that glory which rightfully belongs to you. I am going to shove your desk out of the front office because I'm moving in. And that's the mindset that Lucifer had in this whole equation. Misery loves company, so what did he do? He sold the song and dance to our forefathers. Federal head Adam. Pastor Weefel, well, I think one of his central verses, Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Period. Case closed. So that's our positional standing. It started, though, with Lucifer, and the reason I mention that is because where have I seen this movie before? A proud look. Lucifer, he was lifted up in his heart. Oh, a lying tongue. I'm going to sell this lie to the people that are the, the creatures that are created in God's image. Hands that shed innocent blood. He was a murderer from the beginning, it says in John. Chapter 8. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. What else can he do? When you're that broke and tainted by sin and you're that proud, then you are going to be vain in your imaginations. And it ain't gonna, it's going to be ugly. It ain't going to be pretty. Feet that are swift and running to mischief. Again, that's familiar turf for him. He's speaking a lie. False witness who speaks lies. And interestingly, ouch, sometimes as I think about my relationships with others and and particularly believers, easy to be a critic, easy to be judgmental. It doesn't mean we have to buy everything somebody's selling. We're told that we should be sensitive to having sound doctrine, right? The truth. Buy the truth and sell it not. He who sows discord among the brethren. God don't like that. That's an offense to him. That's reprehensible in his sight. So, as offensive and reprehensible as the expression of sin is, right, how it's manifest, 
Jesus cuts to the chase and exposes the fact that heart sickness is the root of the problem. Isn't that what was said of Lucifer? He was lifted up in his heart. Heart, soul, person. Lucifer is the the demons, the third of the angels that fell with him. The angels, they are soulish in the sense that they have personality. They don't have the physical bodies like we do. Though my understanding is they can assume that image if the Lord so chooses. We've seen that in various places in the scripture. So, Christ again in Matthew, Jesus in Matthew 15, 19 through 20. says, for from the heart, see, he's cutting to the chase. He's getting at the root of the deal. Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. Boy, just a chip off the old block there with what Lucifer was about. These are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a man. There's a lesson in that. Man has a tendency to look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? The heart. That's what he's interested in. He's interested on what's on the inside first. Usually, you know, you're going to spill what you're filled with. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Where am I going? So as far as what sin looks like, you want to unpack that a little bit. One of the things that makes sin so reprehensible to God is that it is an offense against his righteous character and an affront or insult against his goodness and wisdom. He actually calls sin quote-unquote, and its various expressions an abomination and detestable in his sight. Wow, he's reserving some pretty strong language for this, this thing called sin, so must must be a serious business. According to my Bible resources, so I looked this up, uh, penalties for these abominations in the Old Testament now, Included being cut off from the people of Israel, and the references are there, Leviticus, death, exile, destruction, Deuteronomy primarily, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the withdrawal of the Lord's favor, Ezekiel, as well as death by sword, famine, and plague. And all I can say about that is um, is I'm sure glad I don't live in that economy. (laughs) I wouldn't be here right now, I can tell you that. I don't think many of you would be either, truth be told. Right, John?
Um, obviously, though, the, the, the takeaway on that is deeper than just the fact that, ouch, you know, it was serious business and people got whacked. But the lesson there is, is that all those things that we just read, um, on account of the reprehensible, detestable nature of sin, that reflects, all those things that we see reflects God's wrath against sin and the injurious effect sin has on the people of God and their relationship with him. The injurious effect sin has on the people of God and their relationship with him. This is serious business. I don't care if it's just one verse in the Bible. The concept is right, again, from Genesis right through to Revelation, the concept of if the takeaways, you know, on this, because probably I'll end up running out of time. But the takeaway is God made man for relationship. What are the components that either hinder or promote that relationship? And sin is the fly in the ointment. And how are you going to deal with that? Who deals with that? Can I deal with that? Can you deal with that? Can another who also is in the same boat, who is a man of like faults, failures, the same issue, has the same issues, water doesn't go above its higher than its source, so ain't going to happen. We need even Job, the chronologically the oldest book in the Bible, where he talks about, you know what? I need a daysman. And the, the, the word, my understanding is, he needed a go-between. He needed a problem solver with this because of the fractured and broken relationship that existed right from the get-go. Schof Dr. Schofield has a note. We won't go there. Romans 3.23 about some of the specific nuances of sin as iniquity and unrighteousness and not there's there's a list of them um transgression lawlessness and all that kind of thing um but at root it is enmity towards god it is enmity towards god so sin in the context of relationship with a holy righteous god is the real issue. Though we may try to dismiss it or think it's not a big deal, it is to God. So much so that it sent his very own son to the cross in payment for sin. This fact, along with Jesus Christ's resurrection, is the essence of the gospel and is proof that God actually does care in spite of our sin and desperately desires to have a rich, real, vital relationship with us. That's the flavor of the relationship that he wants to have with us. It's not shallow. It's genuine. It's authentic. It's deep. It's real. It's rich. That's what he would have anyway. That's what's available for us. Whosoever will may come. Abundant life. One that's purposeful, meaningful, counts. A relationship that is completely satisfying to him and us, regardless of 
who we are, where we are, or when we are. That means that the relationship he wants to have is for everyone, regardless of where you land or are in history or geographically, what your constitution is. Uh, you know, I've got this little thing, maybe a different revisit, uh, a more polished version of it. I call it the dial. But if, if you were on this dial, regardless of who you are, where you are, when you are, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, there's never a place on that dial which is beyond the purview in some way, shape, or form of relationship with God because, because God is above and below. He's to either end from eternity past to eternity future. This is the God with whom we have to do. You put the attributes up there, we teach them to the kids, and then you look at a timeline, not a dispensational line again, but, and you look at, oh, okay, so he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. Oh, he's righteous and just. He's holy, he's holy. He's immutable, he doesn't change. Veracity, he's true. Eric went through all this stuff. Uh, very encouraging. We need to be reminded of this stuff. So we teach this to our kiddies in Sunday school. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we just teaching them facts and information? Or is this real? Well, Leonard would say, I remember, the Christ or God is more real than the air you breathe, or at least he should be in your heart and mind. Oh, okay, so next question. Is he real to you, Dave? Is he real to you, Dennis? Is he real to you, Justin? Was he real to Adam and Eve? And so you could just draw this. You have that little triangle with his, his attributes, and you can slide this along the scale, the timeline of history. Was he real to Adam and Eve? Was he real to Noah? Was he real to Abraham? Was he real to Isaac and Jacob? Was he real to Moses? Was he real to David? The kings, the prophets. Was he real to the saints in the New Testament? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, in other words, he's immutable. He doesn't change. Oh, so that means the, the aspect or facets of his character and nature, such as the fact that he's always present, he's with us. The fact that he is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he knows our thoughts from afar. He knows who we are, what we are, where we are, what we're going through, where we are on the dial, mentally, emotionally, physically. He knows when we are for such a time as this, in this lo location, the Iron Range of northern Minnesota. Okay? He was that real for those people in their time. What changed? In the Hall of Fame of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, is primarily about who, people who were not perfect. They were far from perfect, but they had a relationship with their God which was such that he was real to them and they trusted him. And one of the 
awful things that you, you could actually, uh, and the book of Hebrews talks about it, um, if you chase it back, it's been said that the besetting sin, the thing that trips us up, yeah, okay, there's certain things. We have predispositions and predilections and whatever, and um, those things can snag us, besetting sin. But you know, that's really not the problem. That's an expression, or that's just the thing that Satan used, or our flesh, our heart, you know, we, we lust after. So there's fightings and fears within and without. We got issues not just externally with the menu of the world, the course of this world, and, and Satan, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, lies, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. John writes in chapter 2, I think verses 15 through 17 of this very letter. No. It's not just without or within. Fightings and fears without within, O Lamb of God, I come. There's your solution. I, I lost my train of thought. Well, anyway, sorry about that. So, point is, is that God is real and he meets us regardless of where we are at, regardless of who we are, when we are, how we are, what we are. Even in all our dysfunction and brokenness, doesn't matter, regardless of our circumstances. doesn't matter. He is real, and he wants to be real for us, and he is what? He is faithful and just. He is trustworthy. And it's unbelief. I think that's where I was going with Hebrews. They didn't enter into rest. Why? Because they were unwilling to trust the promises. It was not mixed with faith, we're told. Not that complicated. Profound, yes. Deep, yeah. But so simple, even a child can get it. So we have the opportunity, the blessing really, of coming to the throne of grace in time of need. What did I do? Okay. So let's, we're going to have to cut to the chase. So if there's a problem in the relationship, it's always on us. What's the primary issue? Sin. Your sin has separated between you and your God, Isaiah 59.2. And ultimately, this is the other component of the problem. This is, okay, this is on me. It boils down to because this right here will um, prevent the healing the forgiveness entering into that relationship or back into that relationship. This right here will hinder it unless this is, this is dealt with, admitted. Ultimately, it boils down to the insensitivity and hardness of heart which forgets or refuses to consider God's point of view. To consider God's mind in the matter and is essentially unbelief in that it is not trusting in or taking sides with. There's your word, confess. If we confess, agreeing or having in common and even cooperating with, thus saith the Lord. You know, when we look at the injunctions, Mike Lehman and Pastor Weefel, they've talked about, okay, what are these uh, 
what are they called? In, they, are they called um, imperatives? I look at those as in, what is it? It's desi- designed, and remember, this, this whole thing is, when he gives us instruction, Pastor Weefel like to use the word instruction in his word, this is for our good, this is for our benefit. He wants us to enjoy him, to fit into his eternal purpose and plan, ultimately to bring glory to, to him. What higher calling could there possibly be? And it doesn't matter who you are, or where you are, or when you are, as his child. So, He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not having, you know, Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John talks about people are going to know that you love God. Why? Because you're loving the brethren. You're, you're responding to his word. You're obedient. I know that's a bad, dirty word. But remember, this isn't about a servile relationship. This is a love relationship. He's, he has our best interests in mind. So wouldn't it behoove me if that's the case? How's that working out for you when you walk in darkness, when you're distant from God, out of fellowship, Old Testament, this is nothing new, what they call it? Backslidden. Leonard would say, you're not a mugwump. You don't have your mug on one side of the fence and your rump on the other. You can't have it both ways. You are either, either not, and I'm not talking about straight line because there's growth and there's challenges. And the fact is, if we say we have no sin, so we blow it. We lose sight of why we're here, who we are in Christ, why we're here, where we're going. We lose sight of all that. But the fact is, is that if he has a promised future, he will complete that which, is, which he started in us, which is ultimately to be conformed to the image of Christ, our second Adam, the perfect man, the God-man. When we're going to put on Dave's funerals coming up, Pastor Mike went over it, 1 Corinthians 15. Very encouraging. Why? This corruptible is going to put on incorruption one day, folks. This mortal will put on immortality. What does the flesh or the natural man have to do with the eternal man, the things of the Spirit of God? Those things which are one of the first verses I memorized and was shown by Dr. Hedges, the man who led me to the Lord when I was 16. Actually, how many years ago? You'd have to do the math, September of 1974. But one of the first verses was, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you know that's where, where faith essentially is one of the ground zeros? of this relationship. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. If I'm not going to believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who not casually seek Him, not once in a while when I feel like it or if I'm in the mood. No. Indispensable. Non-negotiable. David said, one thing, one thing have I desired 
and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. How am I doing? How are you doing? Look in the mirror, folks. That's, you know, example. I mean, I think of communion, this, this deal of having fellowship, relationship. Look at the Lord's table. What's he say? We do that once a month. Examine yourself. For what? How's your relationship with the Lord doing? Are you functioning in faith? You're doing your own thing. Have you lost sight of, not kept your eyes on the prize? Hey, guilty as charged. We all do it. Okay? But by the grace of God, he will complete that which he's started and he uses the processes of his word, teaching. You can read in Ephesians 4 the structure of building upon the apostles and the prophets and so forth. Peter talks about the chief cornerstone. So trials, all this stuff is put into the soup which he uses then to move us into closer relationship with himself. I think it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't come without challenges and sometimes difficulties and pain. It doesn't come without a little bit of give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Not that you're keeping yourself. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the confidence, which even John talks about. We can have confidence before him at his coming. Uh, Amen. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't that be a great thing? What else do I want? I may be broke financially, for example, on earth, but in Christ, I am a child of the King. I am related to the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, as David put it, and I'm incredibly rich in Christ. So at the end of the day, it's not about what we think or how we feel, but rather about understanding God's mind in the matter, coming to grips with his plan or purpose for us. It really is that simple, which is one of those paradoxes, if you want to put it that way, where faith, like grace, are at the same time the easiest and the most difficult things for us to get a hold of. So sin in the context of relationship with a holy, righteous God is a real issue, and though we may try to dismiss it or think it's no big deal, it is to God. So hopefully I've probably labored on that way, way too much, but 
I guess it, it uh, bears repeating. So much so that it sent his very own son to the cross in payment for sin. Well, that's, yeah. That, that's, yeah, it must be a big deal. This fact, which along with Jesus Christ's resurrection is the essence of the gospel. I don't know, maybe I already said this. Yes, I did. It's because I'm on the wrong slide. But, okay, we'll say it again. And it's proof that God actually does care and desperately desires to have a rich, real, vital relationship with us that is completely satisfying to him and us. Okay, Valerie, where's the slide? Here we go. See, I'm blame shifting. I'm going to blame my daughter who's trying to help me out for my, uh, my issues. So, we have the opportunity, the blessing really, of coming to the throne of grace in time of need. Question, is there ever really a time when we are not in need of what God has for us? In need of who he is, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Is there ever a time when we don't need Jesus, who is all those things for us? Who is, what's it say in 1 Corinthians one thirty? who is for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. There's a mouthful. Unpack that. These are the kinds of things, by the way, that we should be occupied with. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin. Oh, sin is the interrupter to the relationship? That I might not sin against thee? It's not about, oh, that I don't do this little thing or that wrong thing. I mean, for crying out loud, if you really want to parse it down, Paul, the closer he got to the Lord and the more he knew him, the less his estimation of himself began. Christ increased his relationship with God, his knowledge of God, his understanding, his yieldedness, all that goes with it, that increased, he decreased. Do you see how these are moving in different directions? That's growing in grace right there. And I get it, you know, if you want to, John chapter 3, it's actually John the Baptist, that verse that says he must increase, I decrease, who is um, in reference to his own ministry as a forerunner of Christ, saying, guess what, my ministry I'm just a forerunner. I don't even have, the, you know, I, I shouldn't even be talking about untying his shoelace. So it's not about me. I decrease, guess what? Jesus Christ, the one who's coming, he's the one who's on the increase. Anyway, I digress on that. But So, again, is there any, ever a time when we don't stand in need of his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, his redemption, where we don't need Jesus who is, 1 Corinthians one thirty? these things for us, regardless of, maybe even because of, our issues. He knew what he was getting because of our dysfunction, our bogus predispositions, our baggage, our issues. We need him, period. As the hymn writer says, I need the every hour. Well, praise the Lord, his grace is greater than all my sin. Marvelous, infinite, infinite, matchless grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. 
whiter than snow you may be today, positionally, and guess what? You can be in that relationship so that you are practically walking in the light. All right, so there's the kids. That's my cue. The buzzer went off a while ago. If they have me back, I'll uh, maybe we can pick this up again. Um, I will move to the summary type points. So he's faithful, he's just. So it is. There's the gospel. Remember, little hinges, big doors swing on little hinges. Right here in this verse. So he's faithful and. He does what? Based on, no, no, not sweeping it under the rug, not blame shifting, not excusing, not blaming on circumstances or, you know, bad genetics or whatever. My dad used to say, I hope, mostly tongue-in-cheek, if he dropped the ball or did something wrong, a neuron misfired. <laughs> Think about that. A neuron misfired. Okay. Nice try, Pops. Anyway, so what's he do? He forgives. So he forgives and cleanses. That's what's necessary to restore that relationship, which is why God made man. There's your takeaway. What for? For this relationship, us with him, he with us. Ultimately redounding to the glory of God, glorifying Himself in this relationship like no other relationship that he has in all of creation. Um, you can do this on your own. Um, if you look at, I think this is a pretty good summary. If you look at um, Schofield's notes, I think it's in John chapter 15, he says... Um, yeah. Well, so th this is critical. So it's one thing to focus on the baggage, the problem, the issue. But when we confess and we're agreeing with God about that and we're owning it, we're not blame shifting, we're owning it. The, the problem is with us. Okay, I'm the one. I have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you know, practically even. When we own that, yes, that's necessary. We need to confess it. We need to admit it. We need to agree with God about it. That's what the word means. But you know what? If you live there, if you stay there, that, that's really a problem. You, in fact, I've, I thought to myself, and I'm guilty of this, I need to confess to God the fact that I'm not stepping into the light and entering into the very forgiveness that confession presupposes as I agree with God about my condition and say the same thing with God about my condition. What's the point? The point isn't to sit there and cry in your beer or beat yourself up or live in guilt and shame. Isn't that what Christ died for? Isn't that what the cross takes care of? Well, then what are you doing sitting there in the soup? We're, we're Lulu, we're cuckoo as believers. 
if we're doing that. Move on. Get over it. Enter into the light. Be thankful. Say, praise God. He's made a way. He's opened the door. He's inviting me into this relationship, which is rich and vital. That's liberating. You know, look it up. Luke 4.18, one of my, he quotes Isaiah, you know, that Christ came to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, hearing to those who couldn't hear. Give, give ability to navigate for people who, whose legs were out of whack. All metaphors for the quality of his work and who he is and what he can do. For me, for you. Right now, real time, as Bill Heminger would say, you know. Not pie in the sky, you know. Information, history, it's more than that. So, we are confessing and agreeing with God about the gospel and how his faithfulness and justness is the basis of his forgiveness and cleansing with sin, from sin in every aspect and integral to our relationship or communion with him. The problem again was not about what people were doing. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, it's a heart issue. That's the issue of sin. Their heart is far from me. Again, it's not primarily about what one is doing. In fact, one can be involved in things that for all intents and purposes appear to be good. God-honoring things. Forget it. It's not about that. So, there we are. We come to the end. We, I had the verse on at the beginning that included uh, 2 Timothy 2.13. When or if, if or when we believe not, yet he remains faithful. He's not going to deny himself. So, um, Deuteronomy says that he is a faithful God. Deuteronomy 7.9, he remains or continues faithful. Um, all right, well, the notes that um, Schofield has, which are worth reading, to abide in Christ, John 15, to abide in Christ is on the one hand to have no known Sin, abiding is important because, you know, Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Not you can do some things or, no, nothing that counts anyway. Nothing that really matters. Nothing that you, you know, share, have the same interests with God. Communion, that's fellowship. To abide in Christ, on the one hand, to have no known sin unjudged and unconfessed, no interest into which he is not brought. No life which he cannot share. On the other hand, the abiding one takes all burdens to him and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from him. It is not unceasing consciousness of these things. Listen, there's things that require our attention. You know, the kid is screaming. You know, you've got some kind of project. Eric's an engineer. I mean, there's things he can't be asleep at the switch. He's got to pay attention to that stuff. You know, so, but it's your posture. It's your orientation. It's the lens through which you look at life, yourself, others, the world around you, your responsibility. 
It is not unceasing consciousness of these things and of him, but that nothing is allowed in the life which, here's your key, separates from him. What does sin do? It's the interrupter. It separated God from man. The day you eat, you'll die. That was a physical, uh, spiritual death. A spiritual death with physical results. Death defined means separation. Death is a result of sin. What happens to our relationship with the Lord, our fellowship with the Lord, our communion with the Lord? If we are walking independently and from God and all that's involved, pride, self-will, all that stuff, if we're walking in that condition of sin, the present reality, what happens to the relationship? Death. It's dead. And in fact, from that source wood, hay, and stubble, even for the believer. It doesn't count for eternity. Up in smoke. No condemnation to those that are in Christ. The Bema, Pastor Mike talked about that. That's a different conversation. Okay, it's time to quit. So, here's the summary. Um, The rest of the note, what is it to walk in the light, is explained in verses 8 through 10. This is a note on 1 John. All things are made manifest by the light. Ephesians 5.13. The presence of God brings the consciousness of sin in the nature and sins in the life. Verses, chapter 1, verses 1 John now. 1, 1 John 1, 1.8 and 1 John 1, 9, 10. The blood of Christ is a divine provision for both. To walk in the light is to live in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Sin interrupts, but confession restores that fellowship. Immediate confession keeps the fellowship unbroken. So, in summary, hopefully we saw this. Our relationship with God, our communion and fellowship with Him is the single most important, indispensable must-have in life. Secondly, sin is the interrupter. Sin is the interrupter too and breaks that relationship. Thirdly, confession and honest agreement about our sin is necessary for forgiveness and restoration of the relationship. Fourth, walking in the light of entering into that forgiveness is the purpose of confession. Not to stay there. Not to remain there. And forgiveness, it's the purpose of confession and forgiveness so that we may grow and move on in our relationship with God. Any relationship, independent and disconnected from relationship with he who is the way, the truth, and the life. So any relationship, independent or disconnected from he who is the way, the truth, and the life is vanity, vanity, pointless. Without Christ and relationship with him, we have nothing, are nothing, and can do nothing that ultimately matters. Abide in me, John 15. And you will bear fruit. You'll have lives that count for eternity by glorifying God. And isn't that the really living, that's really living, more abundant John 10.10 kind of life? That's what he wants for us. That's, that's our, that can be ours. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, John closes his letter with, Little children, keep yourselves from idols.
anything that challenges the rightful place of God in our heart and affections and therefore injures the blessed relationship that we can have with him. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Whatever it is that you've constructed in your heart and mind that separates between you and your God and injures that relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this evening. Thank you for the patience of folks here tonight. Reminder that you are for us in this relationship you desperately desire to have for us, that you've made a way through the person and work of our Savior, the cross of Christ, the gospel, good news. May that draw us into a relationship you desire to have with us. And as a result, may we even be people who are more like you would have us to be, and even that light to the lost and dying world, and even uh, an open book known of read and read of all men uh, concerning the person and work of our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.